Section 18 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17 Peter the Great and Charles the Twelfth. Part 2. Section 3 Charles the Twelfth. Of the states which formed the northeastern state system, there is no doubt that at the end of the seventeenth century Sweden was the most powerful. Its very power, and the fact that the power was of recent growth, excited the animosity of its neighbors, and when in 1697 Charles Twelfth succeeded his father at the early age of fifteen, they thought that they saw their opportunity each one of the neighbors wanted some part of the swedish dominions the czar peter wanted the baltic provinces without which it would be impossible for him to keep up intercourse with western europe frederick augustus the strong elector of saxony and king of poland wanted to rescue the provinces of livonia and west prussia which had formerly belonged to poland but had been wrested from her by the swedes frederick king of denmark wanted holstein the duke of holstein was brother-in-law of charles of sweden as well as his boon companion in spirit similar to charles he had been his associate in every mad exploit holstein as was natural stood under the protection of sweden although not part of the dominions of charles these three neighbors formed a league from different quarters they were to make a simultaneous attack on sweden according to his father's will charles was to remain for some time under a regency but the states met and declared him no longer a minor although he was only fifteen until the arrival of the news of the triple league which had been formed against him he was content to allow the council of regency to govern for him he sat at the council table, some say on it, but appeared to take no interest in the business transacted. But when the news was brought that the league had been made against him, he suddenly said, I am resolved never to begin an unjust war, nor to finish a just one except by the destruction of my enemies. My resolution is fixed. I will attack the first who declares against me, and having conquered him, I shall be able to strike terror into the others. The inert beginning of his reign was indeed no clue to the extraordinary character of this young prince. He was very self-willed, and had apparently set his aims clearly before him quite early in life. When he was a boy, Quintus Curtius was his favorite author, Alexander the Great his favorite hero. To play the part of Alexander in the altered circumstances of the world was his ambition. It has been well said that he was not Alexander, but that he should have been Alexander's first soldier. Among his predecessors, Gustavus Adolphus was the one whose career he wished to imitate, especially in the two glorious years when he was victorious arbiter of the fortunes of Germany but he differed from gustavus in that he made military glory the end rather than the means of his ambition napoleon the great denied the right of charles even to the title of a great general he was certainly a born soldier he loved fighting he loved danger 
he said the noise of musket-balls was the sweetest of music to him. He could endure all hardships, hunger, cold, fatigue. The pleasures and the splendor of a court had no attraction for him. He was simple, almost mean in his attire, Spartan in his way of life. But he was self-willed and headstrong and would not take advice. It is said that at his coronation he snatched the crown from the hands of the archbishop and placed it himself upon his head. It had been agreed that the attack of the three opponents should be simultaneous, but either their arrangements were imperfect or the quickness of Charles defeated them. He kept his word and attacked the first who invaded his territory. He began with Denmark, whose king was invading Holstein. Charles himself attacked Copenhagen, and in six weeks the king of Denmark was at his feet, promising to leave Holstein unmolested and to quit the alliance. Frederick Augustus the Strong was the second. He could not persuade the Polish nobility to bear any part in the invasion, and was therefore obliged to fall back upon his hereditary dominions, his subjects in which were not so independent. The unfortunate Saxons had no interest in the war, but they were obliged to submit. The inhabitants of the provinces which he wished to recover were not pleased to see his army, and kept quickening his footsteps. He had just commenced besieging Riga when he found that the victorious Charles was coming against him, and he hastily retreated. He then in 1700 turned toward the Tsar Peter, who was laying siege to the town of Narva. His army was entrenched and defended with 140 pieces of cannon. Charles's army amounted only to 8,000 men, whereas that of Peter consisted, according to some accounts, of ten times the number, according to his own account, of about 45,000. But the Swedes had still the admirable discipline of Gustavus Adolphus, whilst very few of the Russians had any discipline at all, they were raw recruits, serfs, fresh from the woods, who had never smelt powder. On the day before the attack of the Swedes, Peter left the camp to hasten the arrival of some reinforcements. The Russian officers were angry that he left a foreigner in command. There was a spirit of mutiny among the Russian troops, and the whole army, in spite of its entrenchments, fell an easy prey to Charles. The battle was fought during a snowstorm, and there seems to have been a good deal of confusion in the Russian ranks. But the ease with which he won the Battle of Narva was the cause of Charles's ruin. Thinking that he could at any time finish the struggle with Peter, for whom he entertained a profound contempt, he turned aside to follow and to dethrone the King of Poland. The Tsar could have desired nothing better. This breathing time enabled him to recruit and drill his army. From their enemies, the Swedes, Peter was learning how to beat them. Charles, meanwhile, followed Augustus the Strong into Poland, and then into his hereditary kingdom of Saxony. Five years Charles wasted in needless campaigns, but at length he compelled Augustus formally to renounce the crown of Poland. His ministers wished him to take the crown of Poland himself, but in that unquiet monarchy he preferred the part of king-maker, and he forced the Diet of Nobles to elect as king a young Polish nobleman named Stanislaw Leszczynski. Objection being taken to the candidate's age, 
Charles silenced it by saying, he is as old as I am. Charles kept his camp at Altranstadt near Leipzig. He was now at the summit of his career, and his position was very proud. The destinies of Europe may be said to have been in his hand. On the one side he was tempted to imitate his ancestor Gustavus Adolphus, and declaring himself the protector of the evangelical religion, to form a great Protestant confederation, which would be the grand alliance with the Austrian element omitted. On the other hand, Louis the Fourteenth, who was with difficulty resisting the combination against him, had sent ambassadors to implore his aid. Had Charles turned his steps westward, it is not easy to predict what would have resulted from his interference. The grand allies knew the danger, and Marlborough himself paid a visit to the Swedish conqueror with more than his usual honey of flattery on his lips. Conqueror of Blenheim and of Ramillies, he told Charles that he would gladly take lessons from him in the art of war. But Marlborough soon understood that Charles would not interfere, and that all his preparations were designed against Russia. Amongst the lessons in war which Charles could teach, we may wonder whether it was one to allow a defeated enemy time to gather up his strength again. Section 4. Poltava Whilst Charles the Twelfth was campaigning, king-making, sitting as arbiter of Europe in his camp at Altranstadt, Peter was steadily preparing to fight him again. His soldiers were overcoming their fear of the Swedes, for in the absence of their king, Peter had beaten them once, had captured Narva itself, and had conquered the province of Inguia. He took a Swedish town, and whilst he strengthened its fortifications, he renamed it Schlusselburg, or Key Town, because he said that it was the key to Sweden. When Charles at length determined to carry on the war with Russia, it is probable, if he had known his own mind clearly and carried out his plan, that he must have prevailed. Napoleon criticized his campaign very unfavorably. There is no doubt that Charles should have marched straight upon Moscow, for when once he had reached the Russian frontier, a fortnight's hard marching would have brought him under its walls. On account of his delay, the Russians were enabled to lay waste the country. With a strange fatality, Charles turned southwards, having been tempted by the promise of a remarkable, though not a trustworthy ally. Matseppa was by birth a Pole. Having been found guilty of misconduct, he had been tied naked on a wild horse, which carried him amongst the Cossacks of the wild barren country called the Ukraine. The Cossacks received him kindly. He enjoyed their warlike roving mode of life, and rose amongst them till he became their hetman or chief. He had been a great favorite of Peter, but he wanted to become an independent sovereign. On this account, and because of an insult which he suffered at the hands of the Tsar, he intrigued with Charles and promised that he would join him in the Ukraine at the head of thirty thousand Cossacks. But the Cossacks, when they discovered his intention, refused to desert the Tsar or to follow Matseppa, and when, after weary marching, Charles reached the trysting place, Matseppa could only bring to him a mere handful of men. The Swedish army was at this time suffering terribly from the want of supplies and from the frequent attacks of the Russian mounted skirmishers. 
throughout the severe cold of the russian winter charles would not let his army rest in winter quarters he was very ignorant of the country and wasted his strength in fruitless marches and countermarches his only hope now lay in the reinforcements and supplies which he hoped that one of his generals was bringing to him for he had made a strategical mistake in coming so far from his base of operations without a proper line of communication the reinforcing army was beaten by the russians and its remnants suffered terribly as it struggled on and at length joined the main body few in numbers without supplies and in many cases even without shoes the town of poltava is situated upon a branch of the dnieper called the vorskla it was a magazine of stores for this reason charles thought it his best chance to attack it and peter was equally determined in its defence peter had much the larger army and his soldiers were better equipped and well entrenched peter contrived that charles's army should fight with their backs turned toward the angle made by the vorskla falling into the dnieper charles had been wounded in the heel in a skirmish a few days before the battle he was obliged to be carried about during the battle in a litter it gives some idea of the fury with which the battle raged when we hear that it only lasted a few hours and that out of twenty-four bearers of his litter twenty-one were killed both of the kings fought bravely for they knew that the future of their countries depended on the issue of the fighting the battle began very early in the morning and the swedes charged with such impetuosity that they broke the russian lines but by some mistake the swedish cavalry were not ready to follow up this advantage the russians had time to rally peter brought up a great force of cannon and at the same time sent a general to attack the swedish reserve a final charge of the russians followed and the swedes were completely overcome Matseppa himself went up to charles and knowing that persuasion was vain made a sign to his attendants to place him on a horse then holding the bridle he made their horses swim the river they fled to turkey four days later the whole swedish army surrendered there was no alternative for the proud troops that had always been conquerors peter expressed great admiration for them but sent them into siberia the results of the battle of poltava july eighth seventeen o nine are very important on the very day of the battle peter wrote thank god the foundations of petersburg at length stand firm the province of livonia and part of finland fell at once into his hands denmark laid claim to scania prussia to pomerania the swedish monarchy was reduced to its original limits from which the genius of one man had raised it and to which the folly of another had now brought it back again sweden's financial difficulties made her regret that she had attempted work that was too much for her but the country in which most joy was expressed was poland where charles's nominee was at once driven off the throne and augustus the strong resumed his place but before peter could consolidate his conquests he had one more serious crisis through which to pass and one which almost overwhelmed him partly because charles had taken refuge in turkey and partly because turkey was jealous of the growing power of russia 
a war sprang up between these two powers it was by no means the last of such wars and some people think that it is the traditional policy of russian statesmen never to cease struggling for the possession of constantinople on this occasion peter imitated his late antagonist's rashness and contempt for his enemy promises had been made by traitorous subjects of the sultan he believed them as charles had believed Matsepa. he crossed the prut with his army but found himself hemmed in by a much larger number of the enemy the russian army was rescued by the tsarina catherine a livonian woman of humble birth who had been taken prisoner by the russians on the very day of her marriage to a swedish sergeant who was killed at the same time after various vicissitudes of fortune she had attracted the notice of the czar by her beauty and her wit and he had publicly announced his marriage to her when setting out from moscow on his expedition into turkey she was a woman of very sweet temper and had remarkable influence over her husband being the only person who could control him during his fits he had not wished her to accompany the army but she had begged hard and to the great delight of the soldiers she was allowed to go with them in the great strait of the russian army it was catherine who proposed that a very rich present should be sent to the grand vizier giving her own jewels for the purpose and encouraging others to give negotiations followed the czar surrendered all claim to azov and to the black sea and he further engaged not to interfere in the affairs of poland section five end of charles the twelfth and of peter since poltava charles had been at bender a town not far from the frontier of turkey when he reproached the grand vizier with letting peter the great escape he received in reply the taunt it is not good that all kings should be away from their peoples the turks had made their illustrious guest an allowance but this was now stopped a little later he received a direct order to depart and when that failed he was actually besieged in his house at bender by the turkish troops he fought them from room to room when he was at length overpowered he was carried to a place where he feigned illness for some months after this madness having received pressing letters from sweden and hearing of her reverses he suddenly determined to go home he travelled through germany on horseback in disguise with only two companions in sixteen days he arrived before stralsund and it is said that he had ridden so fast that his boots had to be cut off from his legs Stralsund was the last town that the swedes had been able to retain on the south of the baltic and very soon a force was besieging it composed of danes saxons prussians and russians he was obliged to escape secretly from the town and immediately after his departure it surrendered not even his terrible experiences were sufficient to teach the fiery swede he had learnt nothing he had forgotten nothing with enemies enough around him and with his country exhausted he proposed to invade england and restore the pretender he actually did invade norway and met his death at the siege of frederickshall december eleventh seventeen eighteen his fall was destined to a barren strand a petty fortress and a dubious hand 
he left the name at which the world grew pale to point a moral or adorn a tale johnson vanity of human wishes the later history of peter the great need not detain us long he made another journey through the different countries of europe in which he visited holland again and prussia and spent six months in france where he romped with the young king and stood in admiration before richelieu's picture great man he said i would gladly give thee half my dominions if thou wouldst teach me to rule the other half while he was visiting the mint in france a medal dropped at his feet picking it up he found on it his own likeness with the motto vires aquirit eundo one dark cloud hangs over this part of peter's life he had a son by his first wife a boy of strange temper who sympathizing with the party of rebellious priests had always opposed his father on peter's return his son ran away first to vienna and then to naples he was brought back by promises that he should not be punished but on his return he was condemned as guilty of conspiracy it was given out in a proclamation that alexis had died in a convulsive fit but there were many who thought that the father himself had put him to death not long after to his great grief he lost his other son peter the son of catherine and in february seventeen twenty five he died himself he died in the faith of a christian lord i believe help thou mine unbelief and then hereafter these were his last words what he meant by them no one can say but they certainly may be taken as a motto of his work it was for posterity not for himself therein lies his true claim to the name of great the later history of russia is his best monument yet the civilization which he gave to russia was superficial and there is a world of meaning in the phrase of the witty frenchman who said the russians were rotten before they were ripe end of section eighteen